Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. This is the podcast where we discuss career counselling, career guidance, mental health awareness and mental health training in the workplace. With your hosts, Patrick, Sally, Tina and Amy. Today I'd like to welcome Trish Gibson. Good morning, Trish. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Sal. It's really wonderful to be here. Now, for our listeners today, Trish, I'd like to speak about workplace stress, which is a phenomenon like it's big, anxiety and toxic workplaces. So while workplace stress, stigma and attitudes towards employees suffering from stress or mental illness has been really well researched and interventions have been put in place to address them, globally it still remains an often neglected aspect across across different industries and only a few of the learnings are actually being implemented. Psychological problems that are associated with stress, feelings of helplessness, mood changes, anger, depression, anxiety, nervousness, and the list goes on. Now, Trish, as a registered psychologist specialising in stress and anxiety, give us a little bit of background of what this means for you. Well, it's a complete contrast to the experience I'm having now. If only every workplace had the opportunity to be in the company of people that they trust, addressing issues that are important and in a safe environment, such as we are today having this conversation. But let me pick up on a point that was incredibly important. You said that there's data to support the enormous impact. I want to just share with our listeners that in 2008, Medicare conducted a massive uh, investigation survey data collection. In 2008, they said that $14.8 billion a year was lost to the Australian economy uh, due to stress. Now, that's a decade ago, Sal. And interestingly, Trish, that data... That's the last lot of data we've got now. That's 10 years ago and there's not one place collecting this data because people are operating independently. There really does need to be an overhaul on that data so we know what we're looking at. Well, we'll, not that I spend my time uh, vigorously researching constantly, but I do think it's very important as thought leaders in this area um, and practitioners that we we have the facts and the data straight. And the Australian Bureau of Statistics indicates that 45% of Australians between the ages of 16 and 85 are going to experience a mental health condition in their lifetime. Now, if we think about this, between 16 and 85, a massive proportion of that population are folk that are going around working, travelling, raising a family, uh, doing all of the economic and personal activities that we're blessed to be able to indulge in and, and experience in our society. These people go to work on a daily basis and either have their stress induced by the workplace, maybe made worse by the workplace or brought into the workplace. So on the basis of this uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics data, I think we can safely say we have the facts and evidence to say that to ignore this problem is absolutely something that will be detrimental to every Australian person in the workforce and indeed their family and associates. So we've got to look at it. And indeed globally. 
Absolutely. Well, and interesting you say that because as I was also reading research, then I'll get off research. <laughs> <laughs> but as I was reading research, one of the um, stress or factors that have increased in importance over the last decade is the if you want to say the globality of workplace expectations. So the fact that we're now connecting with our suppliers, our uh, collaborators, our customers and so forth in an instant in technological ways that even weren't so relevant, uh, relevant a decade ago. We've really got to look at it and, and this is sort of uh, not only one of the passions that you and I share, it's it's almost a mission because every single one of us has been affected. You and I have too over a long career and I think that's – we've had discussed this before. That's why you and I have uh, independently focused on how to assist people in our practices and um, through, you know, all the methods that we've delivered. So, Trish, can I just get down to some nitty-gritties? Now, I'm not going to ask you specifics for obviously obvious reasons – but tell me, draw on some of your experience on how workplace stress and anxiety actually impacts on an individual's well-being. Yeah, it's a brilliant question because if we were, and I'm definitely going there, if we were to ask many people who perhaps didn't have the experience and insight that, that you and I have, what they're going to say is relevant and it's relevant more to their physical being. Oh, I'll get headaches, I get tired, I'm exhausted, um, haven't got the energy when I get home. Now, it is fairly obvious when somebody's physical health has a downturn due to worry, stress, overwork, unfair practices various things, poor relationships in the workplace, people can notice that. The thing that, and that needs attention, absolutely, and prevention. The thing that is more insidious, by which I mean not as easily noticed and more detrimental in the long term, is the person's loss of confidence. And that leads over time to a real change in the perception of their own self. Now, once somebody's identity becomes uh, misinterpreted. I'm not that bright. Maybe I shouldn't have been in this workplace. I thought I'd go for the management position, but now I'm so stressed out. I don't think I can. Once somebody begins to have a different self-identity, it affects every single aspect of their life. So it's not just the physical, which is the most obvious to identify first. It just spreads out. And once that happens, um, gosh, you know this, you've done so much training, counselling yourself, Sal, and, and as have I. But once that happens, what we're talking about is somebody comes home, they're grumpy with their kids, they're not as uh, loving toward their partner, they're exhausted, they might not engage in their social and family or community activities. So what I'm talking about is somebody's whole lifestyle can go slipping down that slippery slide because their self-identity has been dramatically altered. I've coined a term. I was talking to a client of mine. She's a, a senior person in an energy company and she came to me very exhausted at one point um, after not having a consultation, you know, for, for a little while. And I said to her, you know what, it doesn't sound very scientific, but I coined the term boundary creep. 
<laughs> so by that I mean just little by little by little she took on more, she uh, absorbed uh, people's difficulties, she backfilled for somebody little by little by little. And um, I think I think we should explore that a little more because it's, sometimes it's not go to woe. People are better at saying, oh, sorry, I don't think I can do that. But the little by little is the very insidious aspect of workplaces that kind of grabs people at one point. So that's interesting you say that and sometimes it takes a long time for people to actually realise that little by little has now become a truck driving straight through them. So the thing that that I think I see in practice is you know, people are in this job and this culture that's not okay and aside from leaving their job, they've got no idea they need the income, they need to feed their children and their families but their confidence is lost because their identity is lost so they're feeling so dreadful that they don't even know where to start even if it was to look for a new career or transition so sometimes they just leave the job because they just can't do this or other times they stay there and they suffer and they suffer and by the time they get to my office or your office it's a disaster what message can you give these people out there now that are suffering workplace stress, anxiety, all those types of things, depression? What message can you give them that there is things that you can do? Yes. Um, look, there's so many uh, points in that in that question and in that understanding, Sal. One of the very initial questions that I put to any individual that I'm working with or for or groups that I'm delivering some, or our company is delivering training to is this. And, and recently I asked uh, a group of uh, senior health practitioners and also their customer service staff. I said, what is the experience that you would want to have in your daily workplace, if not every day, at least on a regular basis? And they kind of looked at me and went, um, <laughs> and I said, now think about it. What is the experience? So as we work through that, people will generally say, um, I want to feel good at work and I, I want to do good. I want to do a good job. So I would say that if anyone at any point checked back in internally, what experience do I want on a daily basis and what to what degree am I having that experience. If there's a massive gap on a regular basis or even a significant gap, you're going to know it because you're not going to feel good. So number one, it's awareness of what you want to experience. And two, where are you at relative to that? Now you might go, well, that doesn't stop the harassing boss or the overwork. At this, at the but that's a mistake to think you can kind of reverse engineer everything and change the culture of the organisation all at once. If we have from the get-go, even in the interview, a knowledge of what we want to experience, what we're going to do is be able to ask better questions. And this is some of the things that we teach. Empowered, aware questions and of oneself so let's go to the stressed person in the workplace who's already been placed there. They've got some stresses due to the various issues, overloading of work or, or lack of communication or so forth. 
They'll say, what do I want to experience? I want to experience a good day and deliver a good job. Where am I at with this? Usually they'll say, oh, I'm not having a very good experience because I'm stressed, I'm worried, I'm exhausted, I'm going home, I'm snapping at the family and I'm not able to, to complete the things I want to do. So the next thing is, it's going to sound counterintuitive for a stressed person, but this is where the tools we teach come to play. Number one, you've got to have a simple, safe strategy to get calm. We teach techniques, whatever works for you, or go and get some consultancy to learn these simple, safe techniques. Now, why would Trish be saying that? Because if we can reduce stress and get calm in that moment, what happens is a part of the brain that is involved with problem-solving, analytical thinking, and recollection works better. When we're in a stress twist, we can't think clearly as to how to solve the problem. We continue to focus on the difficulties of the problem, and there's a vicious circle like a cat chasing its tail, increasing the stress. So number one, where am I at compared to what I want to do? Number two, get calm. Number three, is the issue within myself, emotionally, physically, whatever, it might be something at home? No. Number four, is it outside of me? Management, workload, culture, bullying, harassment, unfair procedures and so forth. And if we can identify the major influencer of the stress, number five is what action can I take? And that's where a workplace for mental first aid professional and trained and qualified person can be perhaps your first step of contact. It might be your external consultant, your psychologist or somebody. It might be somebody that you trust within the organisation. But at that point, when you've got clarity Unless you can solve it yourself, the very best thing to do is get some strategy and support and tools from somebody who is professional and objective because we are not in this universe, I have learned personally, Sal, to solve everything on our own. And that's a really valid point, Trish. So I'm just sitting here as you're speaking thinking about one of my clients who is super overworked, meeting ridiculous deadlines that Superman couldn't meet, just told to get on with it and do it, very sad, very depressed, but doesn't know how to communicate that she's feeling this bad, fears she'll lose her job because she's got to meet these deadlines. So it comes back to how do we get people to understand the need for knowing. So there's a big problem. But in her particular problem, it's communication. She doesn't have those communication skills to say, stop, Mr. Boss, we need to have a conversation. So what you're saying is in there is get calm, find a safe place. But when they're in that absolute turmoil Without those extra skills, without learning, okay, I'm calm, but tell me some of the other skills that you teach to your people that are too frightened to speak up, that are quivering in the corner, that, you know, just don't know how to overcome this for fear of losing their job. Sometimes the the impetus for somebody to go and seek some mentorship or tools or guidance comes from the fear is so much, the pain is so impacting 
that they just can't stand it anymore. I mean, having seen so much of that in consulting in workplaces and privately, I would implore anyone listening not to get to that level. But sometimes the impetus is that they're in a place where they're ready to leave or they can't stand it anymore. If you're in that place, get some support instantly. I would implore people to take action before that. But let me explore a subject. You talked about they're fearful, they're afraid, they've got work that they they can't get through. If it's a cultural thing, poor leadership, poor practices and so forth, um, I talk a lot and I know you do, Sal, about what I call psychological safety. The elements of that, number one, are trust. If people are in a workplace where they don't feel safe enough to respectfully converse uh, about their issues and, and the pressures with their leadership, their managers or their colleagues, sometimes in an unsafe psychological workplace, the best thing is to exit because you want to save the person's identity, psychological wellness. But then that workplace only only perpetuates that with the next person that is um, the replacement. So... If that person is absolutely stuck, they've got to get help. They really do. And I would encourage all workplaces to be preventative, to have a mental first aid professional, to have a consultancy um, safety line and to have ongoing wellness training, which includes psychological safety principles in the workplace. That means how do we communicate without fear? How do we have trust with each other in the workplace? How can we have a difference of opinion without making somebody wrong? How can we encourage people in their differences to to gain the skills and flourish anyway? And I know that we'll probably have this conversation, but leadership is essential. If somebody's there to identify a, 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 a workplace colleague having difficulty, then there's a pathway out within the workplace. If it's that toxic, I'm always for saving the individual first and rebuilding their tools so that the same issues aren't repeated in the next Uh, workplace. Which is where I was going. So often people will exit yeah. But they attract exactly that type of workplace again next time. Exactly. Because they haven't still got the tools yeah. to be able to assert <laughs> themselves and say what it's like for them. So mm. I often talk to clients about not actually leaving, but learning to, ma- learning how to overcome this very tough situation so that then the next job that they do go to, they'll have those tools and thrive. And you're right because many people can't instantly leave their work. They've got their families and other situations to support. So I'm going to make a clear distinction. If something is so unsafe, obviously if there's workplace harassment, sexual, physical harassment at a degree, look, safety always, common sense number one, um, take action, move out of that. If it's I need to tolerate it, I need to just get through it while I look for another position or some other relevant lifestyle reason, um, it's always about what boundaries can I put in place. If I can't manage and control the situation, I can manage and control the way I react to it. And often people feel they lose their own power 
because they're so overwhelmed. That's why learning how to get calm, learning how to think differently, learning how to have better boundaries and what meaning do I choose to make of this? And often people go, well, I can't choose. It's just a difficult workplace. If somebody chooses to stay in a workplace, the strategies to make different interpretations of that inside one's own head, um, the strategies and tools are available. Increasing self-confidence, uh, better boundaries and learning how to specifically uh, negotiate unfair requests. Thanks, Trish. Now, look, how I got into this work is because I worked in a very toxic organisation for seven years and I used to think I'm going to start a business that's completely different to that. So I'm speaking from experience when I say I know what it was like not to have a voice and to, you know, be afraid to speak up. But that led me on to go and learn and get some coaching and get some help. So no longer did I work in a toxic organisation, but I thrived in the workplace. So I went from, I can't exist like this, learnt the strategies. I didn't just go along, now that feels better. Mm. I thrived. Yes. And when you thrive and you want to go to work and you're bouncing out of bed and you're doing something you love and you're in a culture of support and trust and loyalty, life goes from being down in the gutter to absolutely loving it. So it's not just a matter of simply existing and getting the tools to simply exist. You get the tools, you, you have some exploration around that and you go from simply existing to thriving. Which so, brings us back to the, the, the point before, you're, you're exactly right. What experience? This is the question everyone needs to ask themselves in the workplace and indeed in the different areas of life. What experience do I want to have in my daily work on a regular basis? Now, if, if that experience is thriving, creativity, um, enjoyment, feeling of satisfaction, uh, feeling of um, achievement in, in making a fun. difference, fun, uh, camaraderie, um, appropriate remuneration, good work conditions, all of those things. If we understand our reasonable benchmark, um, we we hold ourselves and with the tools that, that people can learn and that we teach – an individual can almost um, hold themselves to account in terms of, well, how did that go today? Because if we've got sales figures, for example, our managers, our board, they're going to hold hold the, the um, employees to account. Oh, look at that. So-and-so made target. This team didn't. That team did. So we're all used to the fiscal um, KPIs and the other outcomes. But the thing that's missing is the common sense and yet the most important foundation of every individual understanding what their desires are, reasonable and to the context, and holding their own selves to account. I, I just, I would love everyone to have that internal dialogue and, and to, to learn to put that up there along with all of the other expected outcomes of the workplace. And 
you know, you, you, we've all come through toxic workplaces and I work with uh, many individuals and teams who themselves are within an element of a toxic workplace. And you know this very well, Sal, and so do I. This brings us to leadership because the culture is, is dictated in many ways by that. And I know you've got a lot of experience in that. So I, that leadership is a good point to start on. So it's we're not going to beat up on leaders. We're going to have a look at both sides. But the characteristics of a toxic leader, blaming, blame model, unreasonable work demands, insulting, undermining, taking credit for their work. I've sat back and thought about this and I often wonder if this is because the leader themselves are under so much stress stress from either the board or the hierarchy to meet unrealistic KPIs to make ridiculous profits that they themselves simply can't cope. Yeah, um, I believe many leaders can't cope. In fact, I've had a lot of experience helping leaders themselves who've got stress because they just don't have the skill. So, <laughs> Sal, it reminds me, um, my little grandson who's in year one at school uh, has lived with me since he was much younger than that. And I remember when he was a tiny little one, he would have his pet names for different toys and things that he had. And one day he said to me, Grandma, can you bring me my can't remember it exactly. It's like Doodle or something like that. <laughs> and I looked around and I, I didn't know. The floor was full of toys and I wasn't sure what he meant. So I couldn't deliver to him what he wanted because I didn't understand what he wanted and we didn't have the shared language. And he didn't have, at that point, he was like, you know, two or something. He didn't have the word for the specific toy. So we get that when somebody is learning a language. Um what I find intriguing is that few or too few companies and personnel understand what a leader is. We're pretty good at identifying when somebody doesn't deliver, but just like that uh, lack of shared language with my grandson when he was tiny, many people don't understand what a leader is and what they're supposed to do. And this is why organisations often promote leaders for reasons that are logical maybe in the history of the company but different from the very essence of what a leader should be. And I, I want to explore that in a minute but can I ask you something, Sal? Um, what's your thoughts on what lead good leadership or what does a good leader look like? Just even a, a few reflections. Well, if I take it just one step back for a minute, there's a manager and there's a leader. Mm. What I've found, let's take the, let's just take the perfect hairdresser. Does the client's hair just yeah. so beautifully, got a book full of clients, everyone's happy. And along they came, and along they come and they go, you're the manager today. Well, take your technical skills and be a manager. Mm -hmm. That poor person is set up for failure because there's no training in how to manage people, no clue. So they either, go back to hairdressing or they're flipped out of the company. Then the one that succeeds, they go, you're the area manager now. You're the leader. Um, hello, where's the training? You can't take people 
out of a technical role and push them into leadership without helping them. And this is part of where I think we're going wrong mm. is totally leadership agree. is a yep. whole different set of training. The psychology around leadership, as you know, it's a whole different skill set. So what does a good leader look like? They collaborate they're transparent. They involve their team with as much decisions as they can. They're honest. They know your name. They care about you. They lead by example. So if if the coffee machine's dirty, they might get in and help clean it up. They're there with their team and a leader needs to be a mentor and a coach. So let's look at those skills from our hairdresser who learned how to do hair beautifully. Mm. Now she's got to be a mentor, a coach, a counsellor. That's a mighty big job and they are really, you know, tools that need to be learnt. So I think, and I'll bring our politicians into it, they might be damn good at going out there and doing certain aspects. But honestly, Trish, the leadership communication skills, setting as an example, I find appalling. Look at the culture, blaming, dig up dirt, it's your fault, mm. yell at each other. If that's the message we're sending from our head of politicians, then we need to do a damn better job. It's uh, There's so much defensive leadership as in, uh, the only way that somebody looks better is they imagine if they uh, contrast somebody else with them and that's a bullying technique in, in, in the playground that, you know, we don't tolerate very well with children. And I, I completely agree, Sal. I've, um, I've had the experience of, 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 you know, supporting many leaders individually in that over my experience and many of them said, God, I was so happy in my medical practice, in my um, engineering uh, work, in my uh, nail salon when I was doing the technical things because the the cross-generalisation of the skills, it's just not there. They say the worst thing is when I have to deal with uh, complaints and conflicts or if I have to address somebody's issues, it's the people skills. And I will say this as well. There are different calls for different qualities of leaders at different phases of an organisation or a division of an organisation's development. So, for example, if you are, if an organisation is just, a st- you know, starting up or amalgamating, it's a whole fresh enterprise, you probably need somebody with the capacity to also visualise how to uh, take that business forward and also strategize and guide the strategic. So these are different elements of leadership. If it's a well-oiled machine that not only needs to continue to maintain but also thrive, you may not need in that organization such a spearheading of strategy. You may need much more inspiration to take a well-oiled machine to the next level. Now, to be a transformative leader, an inspirational leader, a strategic leader, a human relationships leader, and get your own work done, massive ask, massive ask. And most of the, the people who run poor teams, as in poorly run teams, you're spot on sale. They're not happy in their leadership 
most likely because they're a mismatch. Now, this is where the organisation or the business's culture needs some mentorship themselves to say, well, what kind of leader do I really need? What's a match to the role that the organisation needs that leader to uh, roll out? And what's the gap in skills? But it's not only skills. What's the gap in attitude? How can we build somebody's resilience, compassion, communication, confidence and boundaries because just because somebody backfills a leadership position or has been in the organisation for longer than anyone else and therefore is next in the rank for the job, those attitudinal um, foundations which make leadership work, build loyalty, build trust, build psychological safety, they don't come with the package of the person who is good at their thing but they by gosh, can be taught. I know that. That's what I'm brought in to do. You know that. That's what you've done. But I would encourage every business from the hairdresser to the nail salon to the larger organisations to think about building the internal culture of their leadership. Which is one of the things that I think is one of my biggest bugbears is that staff training seems to be the last thing, generally speaking, I'm not putting everyone in this box, last thing on the list. So we fill our cars up with petrol, we have nice furniture in our office, we make sure our computer works, all the equipment's great, the bills are paid, everything in that organisation is Mm. um, maintained. But the last thing that I find is spending money on developing your team still seems to be very weak link in Australia. Now, I'll give you an example. To me, everyone in this world should be trained in mental health first aid. It's an inexpensive two-day course that can, A, save lives, it can help people along the way, it can make a better workplace. But we get large organisations and we see it, not even having one or two people trained. Now, I find that incredible. Then we look at the new skills of the 21st century. So computers are taking over a lot of the stuff, and that's not a fear factor. The greatest skills put out by our very own government's research, emotional intelligence, creativity, resilience, all these things we've talked about, But if you don't know what you don't know, how are you going to wake up and go, yay, I'm self-aware, I'm emotionally intelligent? If if we've got all this fact to say these are how you're going to thrive, these are the graded skills, and then we've got organisations still sending their people to how to do their technical but completely missing the people skills... I don't believe that organisation is going to thrive in the 21st century. Well, the facts are absolutely that the relationship, the capacity to build relationships is the glue that will um, will sustain uh, oneself, relationship with oneself, one's personal confidence, one's family and, and close relationships. It will sustain going out in the circle, the uh, the collaborators in a workplace, the colleagues, the leadership, 
the suppliers, the clients and the whole, you know, chain of all of that and going out further. Happy people in the workplace are going to go into the community and be much more um, amenable to, you know, helping and thriving generally. The number one, it's interesting, the number one factor that correlates with longevity, by that I mean how long and healthily an individual lives over many countries, the number one factor is quality of relationship. Now, followed, of course, by healthy eating and clean water and and all of those physical things that we all need, the number one is relationship. Now, when we talk about um, relationships in the workplace, we don't have to be people's best friends. We don't have to be uh, a counsellor to our colleagues. The professionals will, will, you know, take take that um, privileged position really to help. What we do have to be able to do is learn how to have good relationships in the workplace. The best leaders know how to do that, have appropriate compassion not empathy, not falling down crying and carrying on, which is is uh, debilitating in the workplace, but compassion. By that I mean, can I get it from somebody else's viewpoint? I may not agree. I may not even want to uh, take the path that they're suggesting as the solution, but can I get it? And can I have a respectful and compassionate conversation with them so that together we can work out the most appropriate solution within our resources, etc. Always being, you know, understanding that companies sometimes do have resource limits. But that compassion that we talk about in the literature, that safe workplaces talk about, that, that, that work cover talks about, that Medicare talks about, that everyone's talking about, we call emotional intelligence. But there's a gap there. We can we can teach skill-based situations, how to do the latest computer program, how to fix this vehicle, how to repair a heart surgically. But it, it's it's still a massive gap in terms of how to teach emotional intelligence because even if we teach the communication skills and people might know how to phrase a better question, but unless they've got the confidence and the respect to perhaps challenge appropriately or express themselves, they're still going to be too fearful to use the communication skills. So I like to define things in a way between the doing, which is the skill set, and the being, which is the internal attitude. That beingness, I just would love everyone to hear and know in every organisation, that beingness can be taught and awareness of that area can be raised. I do it on a daily basis professionally. Sally and this company does it on a daily basis. So we see the results and that's where the foundation makes an enormous difference to an organisation and there's massive correlation between less stress, higher productivity, higher profitability, less absenteeism, less turnover of staff. There have been work cover studies. If you want to go to the Queensland data, the statistics are there. You don't even have to believe us that better emotionally functional workplaces are far more profitable in a number of areas. And then it's so much easier to teach the skills because people are willing to learn and they remember them and they like the company. Uh, You've had the same experience, Sal. We've discussed this before. 
when we've gone in separately, collectively to deliver trainings and uh, I talk to staff afterwards and management, the loyalty level goes up because they feel that they're respected. They feel that the company values them and, the, and they're putting the company or the business's time into the staff because they value them and they, they're giving them something that is very powerful and loyalty goes up, appreciation goes up and the willingness to, to input uh, those practices in the workplace goes up. And that's my experience. So what we've got to do as a community is is talk to everyone and build that gap awareness between we can we can offer companies can get go and get your training build your attitudes build your skills it's possible and I'd love everyone to be asking the question in their workplace can we please do that yeah, and that's interesting because there was a whole lot in there that I was picking up. Um, emotional intelligence is a word that I've found has been bandied round. But if you look deeply into that course, there are so many good skill sets that you that it's not just one. It's not just emotional intelligence. You're learning so many good things about self because the first thing to be happy is know thyself. And, and this just doesn't come to the world. Workers. It comes to the leader. If the leader is happy in self, if the leader has thrown out ego or the bad part of ego, if the leader gets down with their team and, and is part of that team, you're absolutely spot on. The loyalty goes through the roof. Mm. We know the figures of presenteeism, ab- absenteeism, yep. stress leave, all of those things. But People look at you like, really? Oh, well, no, I didn't know that. It's costing companies billions. But what I want to say here is as a professional, you and I as professionals have to continually go out and develop our skill set. We're required to do 30 hours professional development a year. We're required to network. We're required to read journals. That lifelong learning for everyone is paramount but not just in the technical skills in self growth you've got a you're green and growing or you're ripe and rotting have you got a fixed mindset or have you got a growth mindset when you look up fixed mindset and growth mindset and have a look where you are that fixed mindset you're not going to ever be truly happy because it's a, it's a negative state. zone. It's stuck. Yeah. You're going round like spinning wheels in the mud and all all that happens is the mud gets spun out onto the people around you, you know, metaphorically, and it's a continual focus on the problem and to the point where sometimes in the workplace or in personal lives people think that they are the problem, that that's just the way they are. And this is how we've come a beautiful circle around a person's identity. Um, I'm just going to throw something in about uh, we've used the words emotional intelligence, I've used the word compassion. I have had the comment made, well, wouldn't compassion make you kind of soft in the workplace? Wouldn't it uh, cause you to uh, feel so much for people that you mightn't be able to make good decisions? So 
I want to be very clear in in the way that I and we might teach and share the skills for compassion. That means the capacity to have an, enough emotional awareness to get it. What is my manager really saying to me? What is uh, what is behind it? What are the implications? Oh, I get it. Okay. But if a decision needs to be made, maybe that person is not in the right position. Maybe they should not have been the manager and it's the organisation who promoted or put that person or backfilled that person. In the wonderful example you gave before with the, the hairdresser coming up, happens in every sphere of industry, even at the senior director level, somebody will backfill, somebody will do that. And... <clears throat> If you're compassionate, number one with oneself and then with the staff, sometimes the most compassionate and caring thing to do once we can objectively assess everything is to cause that person to have a redeployment to a different position, is to carry through with a, a transitional training process, is to go through with a professional, appropriate and compassionate uh, workplace performance review, including training and upskilling so that the person does have the skill gap met, is to say, no, I'm sorry, you cannot take that leave. And you can do that without feeling bad, guilty, like you're a bad boss, a bad colleague or shamed or guilty or whatnot. You can do it clearly because the the attitude of compassion allows for the very best outcome with the consideration of all the elements. If we're stressed, we actually can't think of everything because literally our brains aren't working to capacity. So compassion may mean that you are even clearer in making that decision, which could be a difficult decision, but of course a fair one and a well thought out one. So a compassionate person can have even better, clearer, more productive boundaries. Just wanting to clear that point. <laughs> no, that's good. And one of the points I'd like to clear up is that we don't want people to feel like they're victims stuck in this job. But sometimes you might be in the wrong job or you might be doing things that are bringing some of it on yourself. So it's important to accept feedback graciously. So I want to make that clear is feedback is good, whether it's negative or it's positive, it gives you a time to reflect and go, ha ha, what could I do differently that is for self and is for the company I'm working in. So it's not about um, sitting there and going, I can't do anything about this because I embrace feedback. And sometimes it's not easy to take. But if you sit and reflect on that and think, what is the lesson in here for me? That's growth. And, you know, that's a perfect segue to, <clears throat> to mention something that I think is critically important as a foundation to this always talk about personal leadership, personal leadership, leading yourself, leading whether you are the CEO, whether you're the newest employee, personal leadership. And if we have personal leadership, we're going to be able to ask a better question. And uh, one of the one of the most wonderful sayings is if you know if you ask a better question, how do you want to get a better answer? Ask a better question. I love that saying from Einstein, forgive me if I don't quote it entirely accurately, everyone's a genius, this is Einstein, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it's stupid. 
And within that, it's just such a metaphor. Let's understand our skills, our gifts, and let's understand what's necessary to develop those so that every one of us recognises the capacity within. That's what I think is the key to a brilliant leader. Trish, I could talk to you all day, but we've come to the end of our time. So I really want to thank you for joining us today. We might have to get you back in for another segment. Um, And I'm also delighted to let our listeners know that Trish will be practicing with the Career Development Centre on Mondays and Wednesdays, and we're based in Mitchelton. And she, her specialty is anxiety and stress around workplace issues. Trish has been doing this for a long time, has a very good name and gets great results. So if anyone wants to have an appointment with Trish, you can contact the Career Development Centre on 07 33 And to all our listeners out there, we wish you a wonderful day and thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast and you would like us to appear in your feed, please hit the subscribe button and you're also welcome to leave us a review. For more information, visit careerdevelopmentcentre.com.au.